Well, again, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, we have been in 1 Thessalonians for uh, a number of weeks, and uh, we just got two more sermons here. And uh, as we finish up, thank you, David, um, this series. And what we've been kind of focusing on here is our theme on the banner here is that the people of Thessalonica were ordinary people. Uh, sometimes when we read about people in the Bible, we just assume that they were some sort of super giants. They weren't. They were just ordinary people that lived in a place just like you and I live in a place that had challenges just like you and I have challenges. They were ordinary people. But chapter 1 tells us they were going through much affliction. Uh, that affliction was happening because of persecution, specifically. Uh, but that persecution then went to financial difficulties as people maybe weren't able to work. Um, it had relational difficulties and families that were split because of belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, physical difficulties from the persecution. And then in chapter 4, as Paul uh, even talks about the hurt when somebody goes and when somebody dies, what do you do with that? And so all sorts of different afflictions that we go through in one way or another, but they faced it with great joy. Sometimes we don't always face affliction that way. And so we talked about uh, that the afflictions that we go through that we're reminded from 1 Thessalonians that God is in the process of that affliction still working in us, that he is changing and molding us into the image of Jesus Christ, that he's still working through us, that there is a contagious faith, that what happened in Thessalonica didn't just impact this idea of what was going on there, but it actually traveled all the way through Macedonia. They were a contagious church. And uh, then he's also going to one day rescue us, we looked at last week uh, in that passage. And, you know, uh, I grab onto Thessalonians because of this idea of ordinary people becoming a contagious faith. Confession. I love talking about mission. I love reading about mission in the church. I love thinking and planning for mission in the church. What I don't like so much is actually doing mission. If I'm honest, that becomes increasingly difficult. I don't like to be singled out. I don't like to have a difficult conversation. In fact, this is truth. I, just last night, there's nothing on TV. I'm flipping through and Shark Tank is on, you know, this, this, where people come and pitch these ideas for, for businesses, you know? And so this guy pitches this idea for a waffle place. Looked great. They all love the waffles. But then they started debating about the price and what the company is worth and who's giving money to it and who's not giving. And I started muting it. My wife's like, are you watching TV or not? You know, she's looking at me and I'm like, I, just, I don't like the conflict there. It just makes, stresses me out. I turned it off. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, like to, I like to be somewhat anonymous. But that's not what God calls us to do. The affliction that the Thessalonians were facing was because they were on mission. It was precisely because they were saying Jesus is the only way. And in our culture, we have become so increasingly personal in our faith that it's no longer out there on mission. So I just want to throw that out there at the beginning. As we go into chapter 5, we are going to be introduced to this idea of the day of the Lord. We're going to look at what does it mean, uh, trying to understand it. 
why it matters, and then how we're to live in light of it. We talk about the day of the Lord, Jesus' return, end times, all that kind of stuff. Um, I grew up in the church, Baptist churches, and for me, end times was used as a subsection of hellfire and brimstone preaching. And it went something like this. Some of you have heard it. Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to take all the Christians away and the Holy Spirit. And then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. And this is what the tribulation is going to be like. And if you don't receive Jesus, you're going to have to live through that. In fact, my testimony is that I went to a Sunday evening movie at church, Baptist church, and we watched one of those Left Behind movies before they were Left Behind movies. And it scared me. And on Monday, I came home from school. And I walked through the door at Grandma's house, and I opened the door. And that door hit the closet door that was on the other side that somebody had left open. Squeezed in. What's going on in here? Grandma? Grandma? I walked through. Can't find her. And on the stove, there was a pot boiling over, just like in the movie. (laughs) Oh, at that moment, I thought for sure Jesus had come and I'd been left behind. Now, looking back at it, Grandma was not known for her housekeeping. Things were not always in the place. And so the closet door being opened was not that big a deal. Something burning on the stove I used to tell Grandpa, Grandma treats us like gods, always giving us these burnt offerings. (laughs) Yeah, Grandpa thought it was funny, and Grandma didn't. (laughs) But the movie had that intended purpose in my life. It scared me. And I did pray to receive Christ, because I don't want to be left behind. But I don't think that's what Paul is trying to do here in Thessalonians. In fact, I think that we've misunderstood what this idea of the Lord coming back means. In different times, at different places, if if you were a slave, you you thought about Jesus coming back and rescuing you, kind of taking the the idea of, of his rescue in Egypt upon yourself and being rescued from that. If you lived during the Great Depression, you probably looked at this idea of God's rescuing and having plenty in heaven In other words, we kind of interpret this by whatever times that we live in, and we live in a time where things are pretty good. And so as Christians, we say, hey, guess what? We get this and that. And so I'm not worried about the second coming because my church teaches I won't be here for it, or the the tribulation because I won't be here for it. So what do I have to worry about here? And what Paul is saying in this passage is, look, you're going through affliction, and God's going to deal with the people who are afflicting you. But you are called to live on mission until he returns. So let me read through the passage. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I think that was the name of the movie that scared me. I think it was, that's what it was actually called. While people are saying there is peace and security, then 
sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night, generally, not always. But since we belong to the Lord, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one one another up just as you are doing. What does the idea of the day of the Lord mean to us? And I want to pose this question to you. What are you doing today? And by today, I mean just generally with your life right now. That is eternity focused. What are you doing uh, that, that will last forever? I want to read just one other passage. You can keep your finger here. You can turn with me. Um, if you want, um, look at that, I didn't, didn't mark it on my notes. So we'll see if I'm going to read it. In 1 John, get there. chapter 2. I did not mark it down. But in uh, Paul, uh, John writes that we should not shrink away at the coming of the Lord. And the idea in that passage um, is that John is saying, look, if you're living like in the darkness, when Jesus returns, you're not going to be too excited. If you're living in the light, you won't shrink away at his coming. And so I want you to think about that in light of this passage we just read. So understanding the day of the Lord, what does it mean? Why does it matter? How do we live in light of it? So understanding it, what does it mean? A day of wrath and destruction for rebellious individuals and nations, and at the same time, a day of salvation and deliverance of his people, as defined by Young. So here's, a, here's the thing about the day of the Lord. It, it pops up quite a bit in the Old Testament. Now, where it starts is a little bit of a debate. Some people will take it all the way back to the garden passage where Jesus talks about, where God talks about coming to Adam and Eve and the idea of coming to them in the cool of the evening and and declaring this, this declaration that they were hiding. Some people will take it all the way back there. But the idea of the day of the Lord, specifically in Amos, is this idea of judgment coming and also salvation coming, depending on which side of the fence you're on. And sometimes it's meant of a specific time of judgment in the Old Testament, and other times it's talking about the great judgment to come. And so the weird thing about the day of the Lord is that it's also, we think about it as destruction for rebellious individuals, but also a day of salvation. And in our passage today, both those things came out. He said, 
he said, it's going to come like a thief of the night for those that are living in the dark. But you guys know that it's coming and you're in the lights. So don't worry. So it had both concepts. When is it? Nobody knows. It's coming like a thief in the night. Uh, All sorts of passages. Matthew chapter 24, 2 Peter 3, Revelations 3. All these passages, we don't know. And yet, so many people keep predicting it. There was a guy down in uh, California that predicted it like five times. Like, I would, you know, I I don't know why he still had a church. I mean, I think most people would have left after the first wrong prediction. In fact, there was even a story that one of his associate pastors says, but the Bible says we don't know the day or hour. And his response to him was, you're misinterpreting that verse. Look, it will be unexpected. The idea in verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How does a thief come? Unexpected. They don't send out a letter saying, We're going to be coming by your place between 2 and 4. Those are the the cable people, not the thieves. That would be nice. Okay, it's unexpected. That's, That's how the whole situation works. Okay, after you're robbed, you go, man, if I would have known that, I would have, yeah. That's why that, that you know, is still in, in session. People still do it. It's unexpected. He also tells us that it's sudden. He says in verse 3, people are going to be saying, there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come. It just comes suddenly. Now, here's the thing, folks. We've been living in expectation of this for over 2,000 years. People are starting to say, I don't know if the Lord's coming or not. Look, that's the idea. It could come at any time, and it will be unavoidable. He says, as labor pains with a pregnant woman, they will not escape. It's unavoidable. So we have something that's coming that is a day of wrath and destruction for rebellious people, and yet at the same time, salvation and deliverance for God's people that is coming, that is unexpected, sunned, and unavoidable. Now, I said last week as we talked about the coming of the Lord in chapter 4 that I was not going to give you a timeline. I was not going to put out one of those maps, that we're not going to do that. That wasn't Paul's intention. So here is my little bit of a map for you. This is as specific as I'm going to get for you. Six events in life. These are ones I think that we can agree on, depending on even those that disagree with all the tribulation, all that kind of stuff. I think we can agree on these six. First event is life. We're created in the image of God. You are born at a point in time. Can we agree on that so far? So far, we're good. Death. Death comes to everybody. You die physically, but not spiritually. Now you say, boy, sudden we have six, six points in our life and we're already, we're already at the end of it. The decisions that you make between life and death will determine where you spend eternity and how. So third is your destination. You reach your destination after death, which is determined by what you believed on earth. 
Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. There's, there's a point in what we believe today matters and makes a, a, our destination available. Now, we talked about this last week. There's the resurrection. Okay, the resurrection of the body. Okay, and the spirit. We had a whole little, we had a little map for that. If you weren't here, uh, listen to the sermon from last week. So the physical resurrection of the body. In fact, I'll, I'll just remind you of that. He said, uh, um, for since we believe that, uh, yeah, but what do we want to uninformed brothers that those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, of the voice of the archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We talked about this is a bodily resurrection. Then there'll be repayment. You will receive your reward or retribution for eternity based on what you did on earth. Now, we believe that our sins have been forgiven, and uh, we don't fortunately have to pay for that in the, because of the blood of Christ, but there are passages that talk about our eternal rewards. There's a repayment. And then there's eternity. You will live forever, either in the presence of the Lord or in the absence of. Now, with that in mind, the coming of the Lord is a significant event because it leads to those last four things, destination, resurrection, repayment, and eternity. So that's the day of the Lord, trying to understand a little bit. Now, why does it matter? So you've heard about the different views of some of you who've been around the church for a while of end times. There's post-mill and there's pre-mill. And then there's the group of people, you know, post-mill believes that they're that we're living in the millennium and Jesus is going to come after a thousand years. Pre-millennial, which is what our church holds to, is that Jesus is going to come before a thousand years, okay? And then there's another group of people that are just their pan mill. Have you heard this? Yeah, it just, it's all going to pan out in the end. We don't know what's going to happen. And so sometimes we come to these passages and we're like, oh, what, does this even matter? We don't, churches don't agree on this stuff. What, here's why it matters. First of all, the authority of God's word is dependent on it. Look, if Jesus says he's coming and that there's going to be a day of the Lord, then that's authority of scripture. We, we believe it because he said it. Okay, there, there used to be an old bumper sticker that was going around. It said, uh, God said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. And uh, I remember a preacher saying, you know what? If God said it, it really doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's just, it's just true. Okay, so Jesus said he's coming. The authority of Scripture is based on this. So whether it's pre-mill or post-mill or whatever it is, his return is necessary for God's word to be true. Second, the character of God is wrapped up in it. One of the things he is saying to the church here is, look, you're going through persecution. That will be dealt with one day. I love you, and Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That says something about his character. The Old Testament promises, being present with God, all these things have to do with who God is. Look, it's not about escaping today. The return of Christ is not about, oh, you know, I don't have to pay my bills. 
The return of Christ is, is not about, oh man, I don't have to deal with this political issue, or I don't have to deal with this relational problem, or my neighbors in heaven aren't going to be letting off fireworks till three o'clock in the morning. That's not what the return of Christ is all about. The return of Christ is living eternally in the presence of God and in community. It is something far better than we experience today. And we don't just say, Lord, beam us up. We say, man, I want to be a part of the community of God. It's, I, his character matters. And so the return of the Lord tells us something about his character. And third, and this is what I've been kind of emphasizing, is that the mission of God's people is dependent on it. Why do we go share Christ? Because we believe our time is limited, that Jesus could return at any moment, and there is an eternal destination at stake. That my neighbor's eternal destination is at stake. You say, well, it's just a personal belief. This is between me and God. Time out. We're on mission. Part of our mission here at the church is love God, love people, make disciples. In describing making disciples, how we do that, we have defined mission this way. Intentionally using our time, talents, and treasures in response to God's calling in our life. Using our time, talents, and treasures in response to God's calling in my life. Meaning this, your neighbors, your emphasis, your passions might be different. But the mission is the same. And the way that we do that is by giving time, talents, and treasures. So my question at the beginning was this. What does the day of the Lord mean to our time and culture? How are you using your time today for eternity? Specifically, what are you doing with your time talents, and treasure that are eternity-focused, knowing that Jesus is going to come. He says in verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you, verse 5, are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. It's our mission. I also believe, and not from this passage, but I just want to say this this morning, the foundations of the world is wrapped up in this concept. We believe in an end because we believe in a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's in this process of creating something, and he, he is also pointing to this end. And if you believe that the world happened by accident, then it's probably going to end by accident. If you believe the world began by design and purpose, then you will believe that the world will end by God's design and purpose. Now, you say, well, end, the world end in, in, uh, by accident. I, it, just if you're a moviegoer at all, if you've seen five movies in the last year, I don't care if it's a superhero movie or not. 
it had something to do with the end of the world as we know it. Some event happening that changes the whole way the world is set up. Our society is obsessed with it. If we believe that God started it, we will believe that he has a plan for how he's going to direct it towards the end. And finally, the future of God's people is dependent on this idea. We live because we believe that the Lord is returning and that he is taking us with him for eternity. So how does Paul want us to live in light of this day of the Lord? The key then is verse 6. So then. Okay? Uh, some of you were taking my Bible study methods class uh, uh, on Sunday morning, and I said, you know, when you come to the word therefore, we always stop and ask what it's there for. So then is another one of those phrases. When Paul says so then, we go, okay, wait a second. Here's his point. So then, he says, verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate. So he has three commands. Stay awake, stay sober, and in a sense, verse 8, stay ready. So then, stay awake. I was thinking through this. Uh, this idea of falling asleep in Scripture is not a good one. right? I, I've never fallen asleep at the wheel. I had a friend who did that one time, very scary thing. But when people fall asleep at, the bad, time, at bad times in Scripture, I, mean, just, I thought of three. Uh, one, uh, the disciples. Jesus said, stay here and pray. And he goes off, he comes back, finds them sleeping. Not a good thing. Okay? When, when they fell asleep, they say, look, we're, we are in a place now that is key. You guys need to pray. They sleep. The other one, uh, Samson. Remember that story? He falls asleep. Okay, his girlfriend cuts his hair. That's all his power is. But the funny thing is the story really is about Samson continuing to, to go in between culture and what God has said he's supposed to do. He keeps going back and forth. And so sometimes when, we're, when we have one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come and we're doing both, we're really sleeping. The third example uh, came up was Jesus tells the parable of the one who goes and sows seeds while the farmer is sleeping. It's, it's fun. I drive down Hillsborough Highway here in the morning, coming to church, and you just got all these farms and things are growing and people are planting new orchards out there and stuff. And it, I mean, I would have never thought about, you know, what would be really funny is if I went and planted some other plants in that guy's garden. Okay? Well, I would never think about that. I, I did just now, but I, I, I wouldn't do that. Now it is kind of funny to me. No, the idea is that while somebody was sleeping, they came and sowed weeds in there. And the idea is that we're forgetting that there's a battle going on. We sleep through it. So the command that Paul gives us is to stay awake. It's not a literal command that you're not to sleep. Some of you are going, oh, good, I've got that one covered. I haven't slept full night in a long time. No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying that we are to morally and missionally, spiritually, stay awake to what's going on around us. Don't start dozing off and give in to the culture. So he describes it another way. He says, stay sober. And I think he means this both literally and figuratively. 
Being drunk is a picture of being filled with, in Scripture, or comforted by, or content with, or controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say that again, because I think you need to grab it. Being drunk in Scripture as pictured as being filled with, or comforted by, or content with, or controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. It blows my mind when Christians say, oh man, I really need a insert, drink, glass, this, that, whatever it is. Whoa, time out. Are you being comforted by that? Are you being filled by that? We are to be completely dependent on the filling of the Holy Spirit, even Baptists. Even Baptists. Thank you. Third, we're to stay ready. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, love, and the helmet of salvation. There's a picture of being ready there. Now notice, look at verse 8. Those of you who have been around in this series, we introduce what Paul said in chapter 1, is that he knows of their, verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfast hope in the Lord. And we said that these three words keep coming up, that faith and holiness get kind of combined, but labor of love and steadfast hope continue. And then Paul has this little knockdown version of what he's going to write in Ephesians later on about the armor of God. And he has just a few pieces of the armor of God. And he says in here, look at it, verse 8, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. There's those words again. He's saying, your heart, your, your, the chest area here is protected by this breastplate, which represents your faith and love. I love how those two are combined. Your faith, it's not just what you believe, it's how you love others and how you love God, how you love others in the church and others in the world. These things are a protection of your heart. It's incredible how when we stop loving other people and we're just dependent on what we believe, we become really critical, grumpy, old Christian people. And then he says, put on the helmet of the hope of your salvation. Now, he's writing here to believers. I don't think he's necessarily just talking about our coming to Christ, but the day of the Lord represents that being saved. And so these three things come up. Faith, love, and hope. Keep returning in theme. And then verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says us here, he is talking about believers, followers of Jesus. So I want to make a distinction here. There are those, and this is unpopular interpretation, opinion, belief in Scripture, but I think what Paul is saying is there are some who, if they continue on that path, are still destined for God's wrath. Or those that you're not part of that. 
And so when we talk about salvation, we're being saved from sin. There is a condition that you and I obtained by being born from our mom and dad, Adam and Eve, that is a sin nature. That we have been rebelling against God. And God is going to reveal his wrath against sin, but he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, to rescue us from that rebellion. That if we believe in him, if we place our faith in him, repent of our sins, and follow Jesus, that we are being saved from sin. That is awesome. And and so many Christians, it just kind of stops there. But he says, For God did not destine us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we're also set salvation, sal- saved to life. We're not just saved from sin, but he, we are given a new life. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the life doesn't just, it's not just this you get saved and then you just kind of wait around to die or for Christ to come. You've been given a life to be used for the glory of Jesus Christ. You're saved to something. You're part of a family. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're gifted. You're called. And we believe that that salvation is by God's grace. We're saved from sin. We're saved to life. We're saved by grace. So verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What exactly is the encouragement here? What is it that we're supposed to encourage people with? My encouragement to you this morning is first and foremost that you obtain salvation. That you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That you recognize that maybe you're rebelling against God, that you're doing your own thing, you're defining uh, good and evil on your own terms, and that God has loved you so much that he sent his son, that you need to respond to that. So I would encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that first and foremost you would obtain salvation. Now, what Paul is saying here is the idea of light and darkness is that we don't just sit around and wait for his return, but that we walk in our salvation, that we are on mission, that we live in such a way that people will see Christ in us and we will have a contagious faith. That looks different for each person here. I think that should be part of our prayer. What does it mean for me to walk in salvation? And then third, I think one of the things that we want to encourage in this process is to build others up. He says here, encourage one another and build one another up. It's a process of discipleship. A long time ago, I sat down and said, what is my, what is, churches have visions, organizations have visions. What is my, what is, what is my vision? What, what do I think God has called me to do? And I summed it up this way. I feel that God has called me to encourage and equip people to follow Jesus. That's that's me. Encourage might be encourage them for the first time. Encourage might be, hey, you need to get going, whatever it is, and then equip. Equip people to actually do it. That, to me, is part of my fulfilling the calling of what it means to encourage one another and build one another up. 
It's discipleship. It's mentorship. It's being purposeful in our making of disciples. And so build others up. So what's the application and action? That's, those are the three terms right there. Obtain it. If you're here this morning and are not sure whether you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to talk to Pastor Rich or myself before you leave and know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this. I've said it before. I stole it from Billy Graham, so I'm not, I'm not you know, shying away from it. But being in church does not make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Just because you're in church does not mean you are a Christian. Just because you are an American does not mean you are a Christian. Just because you grew up in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. Just because you go to a Baptist church, that doesn't make you special. We need to have a relationship to bow our knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you're not sure, let's start there. The second church, are we being contagious? Are we walking in this faith in such a way that the world is going, you are living differently? Man, I said at the beginning, I don't like to stand out. Now, um, I'm not picking on anybody here. It, I, I, this uh, few months ago, my wife and I, we went out and picked out a couple new shirts for me. You know, I'm always in front of people. And we pulled this shirt off the rack. And uh, my wife goes, I kind of like it. I go, yeah, I kind of like it too. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, if I wear a flowery shirt to church, people are going to say something about it. Second time I've worn it. This is the most popular shirt I have right now. I got to tell you. Some of you are not too sure about a guy wearing a flowered shirt. I don't know if it's Hawaiian or not Hawaiian. I don't know if it's flowery, what it is. Some of you kind of walked off shaking your head. And, and I, you know, I, as soon as she pulled it off, I go, I like it. But in my mind, I'm going, somebody's going to say something about it. I don't like that. Should probably just go with the solid blue shirt. Now, some of you, like to be pointed out. Some of you like to stand out. That's not me. I'm just being honest with myself now. But God has called us to live quiet lives from 1 Thessalonians. But those lives do stand out because they should be different than the culture in which we live in. So walk in it. And then my word of application is repeat. That means we continue to make disciples. Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay? I mean, it's kind of the Christian story here. Wash ourselves with the blood, rinse, okay? Grow in our, in our walk and repeat the process in somebody else's life. And look, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, praise God. Thank you that somebody shared, your parents shared, your pastor shared, whoever shared your life, your Sunday school teacher, and praise God for that. Can you be that to somebody else? Don't just stop there. The day of the Lord is coming, and it'll be a day of wrath and destruction for rebellious individuals and nations. At the same time, it'll be a day of salvation and deliverance for his people. Let's pray. Lord, thanks uh, for this morning and the communion table and for each person here. We praise you uh, for your church and for your word. Uh, Lord, it's easy to talk about it. It's another thing to live it. 
So, Lord, help us not to just be listeners of your words, but to be doers as well. I pray that you'd help us to apply this to our lives and to make a difference in the communities in which you've placed us. Help us to be a church that is on mission, loving God, loving people, and making disciples. And pray as we close, as we give our offerings, as we give our, our last breath in, in worship to you this morning, Lord, we pray that it would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.